0: Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Well, good morning, everyone. So great to see all of you on this beautiful Sunday morning. My name is Christian Smith. I'm our executive director of pastoral ministries here at the Life Christian Church, and I have the pleasure of spending the next few minutes with you as I share the first series and a new series that we're launching today called Adventure uh, legends of Disciples. Legends of Disciples. By the way, our lead pastor, Terry Smith, is uh, on his yearly study intensive where he spends a few weeks in prayer and studying scripture and reading a whole bunch of books and getting prepared for the next season of ministry at TLCC. So make sure uh, throughout the week, if you can, to, to pray for him that this will be a time in which uh, he experiences uh, a lot of insight from the Holy Spirit and rest as well and comes back rejuvenated uh, and lead, uh, leading us in to the future. So I'm really excited about this new series that we're launching today as we're able to focus on some different disciples that have uh, lived throughout history of the Christian church. And those could be disciples that we're talking about over the next four weeks that are uh, apostles. That could be Apostle Paul or different biblical characters or contemporary Christians who are alive today who have had a legendary impact on, uh, on the world, on the church, and on our different lives. And so a disciple is someone who sits at the feet of someone. They're a follower of someone, and so we'll be able to to focus on what it means to sit at the feet of Jesus, to hopefully be inspired by some stories, and to develop some Christian role models. And by the way, I'd just like to, I'm sorry for everyone on the online campus, because we have some new coffee in the house. I don't know if you heard about this. And also, (laughs) nice acidity, 21% extraction, no, just... I don't know, I need a refractometer to judge that, so I don't really, I don't have one on hand, Um, but cafe's awesome, also everyone should be super excited, I don't know if you know, but you know, we used to ask people to not bring coffee into the auditorium, it was a great lament of many of us, my mother cares a lot about the chairs, and stains, and uh, stuff like that, but now, if you bring a, uh, if you have a lid on your coffee cup, you can bring it into the auditorium, big round of applause for coffee in the auditorium. (laughs) I just had to shout out the cafe. I'll be sipping that through this. I'll be jittery, jumping all over, walking around more than usual. Okay, legends, disciples. Hey, it's so important for us to set our eyes on role models right? We all know how important role models are. The people that we look up to often impact us. We begin to kind of conform into those people. And in scripture, we see actually the importance of looking at humans who have lived out the faith uh, in a really commendable way that sets them up as kind of role models for us. We see this in Hebrews. There's the famous hall of faith, or the, the Faith Hall of Fame, as some call it, where it lists out different believers who had such strong faith that they followed God. It's put forth in Scripture as an example before us. So I think it's really important for us who we have as role models in our lives. I remember when, uh, when I was, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, I, you know, I played a lot of basketball. And, uh, and actually, a little bit of a shout-out, uh, Chaplain Willie Alfonso is with us today. We're honored to have him with us. Thank you for joining us. I didn't know you were going to be here, and I'd already planned to say this, but uh, I think you got us tickets to a Nets game one time. He's a chaplain for the Yankees and formerly for the for the Nets, and we were able to go into like the back tunnel that the players walk out of after the game. And so I'm like, I'm not very extroverted when it comes to stuff like this, super super awkward, um, which is why I married my wife because she does all the awkward things for me, has the weird conversations with people, all that kind of stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, just go say this to them, and I'm gonna be awkward back here. And so I was at the Nets game, and I bought like you know like the fifty dollar booklet, like their their season booklet that has the roster with like their bio and their stats and all that stuff in it. And I went back and I stood in the tunnel and got like every single like Nets players autograph for them to sign this booklet. Um, and that was when like, that was like the glory, well, I guess the Nets are kind of back in glory days, uh, depending on how you feel about them. But that was when like you had Vince Carter and Richard Jefferson and Jason Kidd and Kenyon Martin. It was like super exciting, uh, team at that point. Any Nets fans in the house today? Maybe Never mind. If we had a second service, I wouldn't ask that question again. So I remember these are like my role models, right? I was looking up to. I had their posters on my wall, all that stuff. All right, cut to I don't I don't know, a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago, I probably hadn't gotten anyone's autograph since that point because I feel awkward doing that. And I was at an event where like my, my, my favorite theologian, one of the most impactful theologians in the world, you hear me talk about him all the time, and, T. Wright, and I had a, a book that I'd bought like five years ago that had absolutely changed my entire life, my entire hermeneutic, my approach to reading, reading scripture. And it was like all tattered and torn and we had the ability to, to, to go and to uh, get books signed by him or a picture taken with him. I had never done anything like this since. And I remember going up, and getting him to sign this this book for me, and it felt like, I don't even know how to put it into words, it felt like a distinctly important moment in my life because I saw who my role models were becoming in my life. Now, mind you, having uh, athletes and such as role models is awesome, right, like, like I, I still look up to athletes, I love watching sports and, and all that stuff, but I think it's really, really important for all of us to consider what it means to develop Christian role models in our lives. And who are your role models? I encourage you to think about that. What biographies are you reading? Steve Jobs, you know, Thomas Edison, George Washington, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, different kinds of role models that we might have. How many of those people, how many of those books that we're reading or movies that we're watching about people or whatever it might be are people who can hold up an example of Christian discipleship to us? Now, if we're business people, right, I, I'm not limiting it to that. I'm not saying no to other kinds of role models, right, who we can look up to in certain kinds of ways. Everyone's flaw, there are you know, issues with everyone, but there are parts of people's lives that I think that we can attach to. So find, I encourage you to find, what field do you like? You know, find a Christian scientist or find a Christian teacher or find uh, you know Christian artists or actors or, 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 or athletes. And I encourage you over these next few weeks in this season to, to practically pick some people out that that you think that would be good for you to, to to begin to focus your eyes on them in an appropriate way, right? Not not you know. Obviously, Christ is our ultimate role model, but as someone who has lived out their walk with God in a commendable way, so we can grow in Him. Okay, good. All right. This week, we're focusing on a Christian disciple, uh, a legend of the faith named Dallas Willard. Who's ever heard of Dallas Willard? Oh, actually, a decent amount of people. If you're online, type into the chat if you uh, if you have heard of Dallas Willard. He's written a few famous books at the popular level, uh, like The Divine Conspiracy, The Spirit of the Disciplines, Hearing God, Life Without Lack, which is actually one of our recent recommended readings for our trimester spiritual growth plan at TLCC. And he was born in 1935, and he passed away in 2013. And he was in... Uh, very brief, a famous and influential Christian philosopher and teacher whose teachings and writings have reverberated throughout the Christian world and left an indelible mark on the trajectory of Christianity. Now you're going, oh no, Christian's going to talk about a philosopher again. I am myself and I will continue to (laughs) be myself accidentally or intentionally. Um, but I think it's really important. Uh, like, I won't get into his philosophy or, or, or anything like that uh, because that would be boring for all of us. But I think that it, he, he, he's an example of someone who, who is working at the highest levels in, in a secular field as a Christian that's very antagonistic towards Christianity. And it's really important to realize in the story arc of his life, 1935, uh, it's as the Great Depression is ending, but they're still living in the effects of it. And he was born in Missouri in a town that basically had nothing in it. And I think that he can be an example of the effect that someone who you would not expect to do something great does something great. And remember, academia, whether you enjoy it or not, and it's not for everyone, but academia does have a really, really huge impact on the world. Um, You know, if you have kids and your kids are in college, who are they learning from? right? Or if you went to college, you've learned a lot of things that you might not remember that you learned it, but you learned it from your professors or your teachers. I actually have a lot of professors who were taught by Dallas Willard and who have now impacted me. And so you see this great effect. Typically where the academy goes, you often see society go that direction. Uh, By the way, I don't know if I should say this, but um, that's always a good start to a sentence. I don't know if I should say this, but the other day, for, for those of you who don't know, I'm I'm going to pursue my doctorate in the near future. And I had someone inquire like on social media or something. It's like, Oh, so you're doing this thing. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm just going to, going to go study for a few years and you know, see what happens. And uh, he was like, yeah, I took semesters of, of, uh, I took semesters of theology, never used it a day in my life. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> okay. I messaged something back like, uh, Haha, uh-huh, that stinks. I've used my education every day of my life. <laughs> it was bad. But education, I shouldn't have said it, should I have? Education can impact us in big ways, and he was a big part of, of, of developing Christian theology and writing our perspectives on how to understand and engage with God in a significant way. Okay, so I'm just going to talk through a little bit of his life, kind of three different periods of his life, and pull some learnings that we can get from him, just from how he lived his life, and also some of his teachings, and, uh, and apply uh, scripture, see how he was living out scripture as a disciple. So it's going to be a little bit of a different kind of teaching week in that we're telling the story of a person. Okay, so Willard, again, born 1935 to a, a relatively poor family, and there was not a lot going around him in Missouri. And I can only imagine, again, he ends up being a, a massive philosopher teaching at USC, department chairs uh, lauded with, with great amounts of praise for his teaching prowess, and you never expect someone who comes from small town Missouri to be teaching philosophy at the highest possible levels. I remember I had, uh, when I was studying philosophy in my undergraduate program, one of my best friends named Spencer, we decided to study philosophy together. So we were in all of our classes together. Well, he was from deep South Georgia, deep Georgia. So I was studying outside of Chicago. So it's like kind of like urbanite, you know, kids and so on. And so it'd be in the middle of of philosophy class. And, uh, and... It'd be like our teacher would be like, you know, well, Plato's metaphysic was this and his epistemology of the ontology of the phenomenology of the, and then my friend would like raise his hand to say something like, well, I think the metaphysic of the philosophy of the theology of, the, and it just didn't sound right. You're like, like this can't make sense right now, right? Like this doesn't. Very prejudiced against the Deep South. He he actually has a sign when you drive into his town that says, welcome to the swamp, no joke. That's the kind of place that he came from. So when you're sitting in in, in in a classroom with someone like that, you're not expecting the most brilliant things to come out of their mouth. Conversely, I had someone who was English who was in one of my classes, and I thought everything was brilliant that came out of his mouth until I realized he had no idea what he was talking about. But prejudices aside... He, he comes from this really interesting background, but not just his circumstances or his situations, or not, not just the circumstances of, of where he grew up, but what occurred in his family deeply shaped him and I think catapulted him into his future. You see, when, when Dallas was two years old, his mother named Mamie, uh, she was on a carriage and she jumped, jumped, off, uh, jumped off of the carriage and suffered a hernia which doesn't seem like that bad, but she went to a local hospital which was very underdeveloped and they were uh, you know, not advanced in their, in their medical technologies. And she ended up developing a fever and was on a steep decline and everyone knew that she was going to pass away. So Dallas Willard's mother, ends up dying, and he's at her funeral, and he doesn't understand what's going on, and he tries to climb into her casket at the funeral. And from there on, there was this displacement that Dallas experienced in his life that deeply shaped him. His father ended up marrying uh, what would be his stepmother, and his stepmother disliked the children so much, and there were nine of them And Dallas was the youngest, so the last one left. And the stepmother disliked the children so much that she sent Dallas out of the house at about fifth grade to go live with his older brother. But then his older brother was called and drafted into World War II, and Dallas had to go back and live with his family, and had this extreme sense of displacement that marked his life. But through all of this difficulty, I think something really really ended up shaping his life, and that was words that his mother said on her deathbed to her husband named Albert. She said right before she died, Albert, keep eternity before the eyes of the children. Keep eternity before the eyes of the children. What an incredible thing for a mother to say on her deathbed as one of her, her final thoughts, to keep eternity before the eyes of the children. See, I think that this this shaped Willard's life. See, the father used Willard's, the father used Willard's past experiences to bring him into the future that God had for him. When Willis, when when Dallas was nine years old, he was sitting in Sunday school class at nine years old, and somehow became extremely conscious that Jesus was the greatest person who ever lived. And and he there wasn't a chance for him to have an altar call to give himself to Jesus. And he said that it was like the the, the week between services where he felt like he couldn't give his life to Jesus when he was in that church. It was like the worst kind of a. Uh, 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 unrequited love that you could ever have. It was worse than, than loving a woman, but he wasn't able to talk with her, speak with her. It was this, this overwhelming feeling of a need to be with Jesus. And this wasn't just because of the learnings that he had in his Sunday school class, but I think he had such a yearning for Jesus, for an eternal, consistent father figure in his life, in the father, because of the displacement that he experienced in his family. Because of the past hurt that he had and his circumstances, it created a void, an opportunity for God to step in. Later in his life, he would share this anecdote uh, in classes and in his teachings. He never said if it was about himself, but I think you can clearly see there is a little truth to it where he says, uh, a a little child lost his mother to death. He couldn't be adequately consoled and continued to be troubled, especially at night. He would come into the room where the father was and ask to sleep with the father. This little child would never rest until he knew not only that he was with his father, but that the father's face was turned toward him. He would ask in the dark, Father, is your face turned toward me now? And when he was assured of this, he was at peace and was able to go to sleep. You see, because of the loss, the displacement around him and and the ephemeral nature of of people leaving and him coming and going and there was no stability, is that he was yearning some kind of stability in his present. See, God used the past to launch him into the eternity. And I think God wants to use your past to launch you into eternity. What are the things in our past that we think that, that hold us back? What are the experiences? Maybe family experiences, maybe work experiences, maybe hurt from people around you. What are those things? I think culture is doing a really great job today of beginning to, 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 to help to curate environments and contexts where it's okay to actually visit our pasts. It wasn't like that socially for a long time. But what I think that we can do better and what we can be encouraged in is to not just dwell on our past and think about it and feel comfortable talking about it but figure out how our past is catapulting us into our future. How is our past preparing us for something better? Not, it's not even about reconciling or feeling better about all the things in our past but it's understanding how we, can, how we can think about these things and say wow maybe God was preparing me or launching me into eternity in some kind of way today because of the unique experiences that only I have had in my life. You see, eternity, though, is not just something that we experience tomorrow or often to the future. So when Dallas's mom is saying, keep it eternity before the eyes of the children, or when I'm saying that, that our past launches us into our eternity, it's not that, that, um, the, the different experiences, uh, uh, that we have today are preparing us to be saved and then go to heaven in the future. That's not what I'm saying. And this is one of the key teachings of Dallas Willard that he kind of uh, like broke the wall of this teaching into the world, uh, as he, a lot of his teaching was on heaven and on the kingdom of God and on eternity. And so you've heard me say this a lot before, but it's always good to remember to drill these things back in because you guys remember about 9% of the things that speakers say, as do I. So I'm going to say this over again, is that heaven is not something off in the distant future that we go to once we all die or Jesus comes again. All right, that's how we think of it. We die. We go to heaven. That's where we stay. Everything's going to be wiped away when Jesus comes back. And then we live these aspiritual experiences for the rest of the time. That's not what's going to happen. Scripture super, super clear. I don't have time to go all through the scripture, but you can ask me after or whatever, or email me or something if you'd like to see some of it. The real vision of what's going to happen with heaven is that heaven is coming here. There will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's supposed to be an inbreaking breaking of heaven, which is the, the, the space in which God is fully present, and when it, where his leadership is employed and his full love is experienced and expressed. That's, that's where heaven is, and heaven is supposed to come on earth so that you have heaven on earth, which is where that phrase comes from. That's the ultimate dream. Now, when Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom of heaven on this world in part. It is already here, but not fully here. And so our job as people who have the Holy Spirit when we're believers in Jesus is to be kingdom of heaven people on the earth who are putting down the building blocks of eternity, but today. So eternity does does not just mean something like like, like time-wise, it's off in the future eternity is is a qualitative thing it's not just about time it's a qualitative thing there are things of eternity of, of, of a quality of eternity that we have access to we have access to heaven and the powers of heaven and so our job today is to go all right there's there are things that i've experienced this is who i am but my job today is to keep eternity before my eyes and to say, God, how are you using these things, these experiences that I've had, so that I can usher in eternity, heaven, to this world today? Does that make sense? So what are your past things, like Willard's, right, the loss of the experience, but he used those losses, a displacement, to be able to fill the void with the Father that would, that would keep him in the Father's uh, face, face-to-face, so that he could usher in eternity in his life. And I I love the scripture from the Apostle Paul when he's writing to uh, uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I love that. Take hold of eternity. What is that telling us? It's telling us that eternity is not something there. Eternity is something here. And we have to take hold of eternity right now. So how's your past leading you to take hold of some part of eternity in this world right now? And then one last thing on this point is that your past will matter for eternity. Which is kind of a scary phrase, I think. We want like eternity, let's say the, the, this, the sense of like the future eternity, once we're in heaven fully, Jesus comes back, he makes everything right. The two most prominent questions I think that I get about heaven, interestingly enough, are, will we remember our pasts? Anyone ever think about that? We'll remember our pasts once we're in heaven. And then we ask if we'll have free will in heaven. Or will we be like like robotrons who just have to do kind of what God wants us to do? Because if we're not going to sin in heaven, then how could we have free will? Well, a lot of theologians, does anyone ever ask that question? Maybe some people, those two questions? I've definitely asked those a lot. And you guys know we have good coffee at DLCC. Um... A lot of theologians speculate, this isn't necessarily uh, uh, directly in scripture, but almost all theologians agree on this, is that our past and the sufferings that we experienced and the loss and trauma that we experienced, that we remember those things in heaven. And because we understand life in its broken state, that once we're in the presence of God and see God face to face in heaven, that we will not choose to sin We will be free to, but we will not choose to sin because we remember the brokenness of our pasts. Kind of interesting, right? At least I think it's kind of interesting. So why are we going to follow God? Well, why do you follow God today if you are in a place where you're doing that right now? Well, part of it is because you know what it's like without God, right? There's that contrast. And so you will be re- all, the, all those broken things will be reconciled. You'll be at peace with them, but you'll understand what life is like without God. So your past matters for eternity. Don't forget the past that you have because it shows the progress that you now have and it will show your eternal progress off into the future. Okay, Dallas Willard, brilliant guy, B and C student in school. I felt very validated when I saw that part of a biography on him. Uh, and the reality is, this is pretty much probably because he was on a farm working like 35 hours a week as a migrant worker when he was in middle school and high school. Because yeah, they had to provide for his family. They didn't have any way. There was a whole bunch of kids. But he goes on. He reads voraciously. He carries Plato. He reads the entire library in his town. All of the books in the library. He said it was a very small library. So, I don't know. Either way, I would be very impressed with that. If I read all the books on my shelves, I'd be very happy with myself, let alone in a public library. And he goes off to college. He proves to be a brilliant intellect. He gets ordained as a minister. And he had proved himself to be very intellectually competent and above his peers. Yet, listen to the humility here. This is a quote. He considered himself abysmally ignorant about God and the soul and a hazard to those who listened to him preach. Should I walk off stage right now? I don't know. I may be a hazard. So he decided to attend graduate school and study the big ideas of philosophy, knowing that Jesus and his teachings were addressing the same questions philosophers have been wrestling with throughout human history. It was at this time that God gave Dallas a prophetic message. If you stay in the churches, the university will be closed to you. If you stay in the churches, the university will be closed to you. This is still true today, sadly enough. But if you stay in the university, the churches will be open to you. Dallas allowed God to direct his steps into academia, and he was offered an associate professorship at the University of Southern California in 1965 without even applying for the job. What humility. How many of us would say that we'd be absolutely hazardous, ignorant, abysmally, all these negative words about our understanding and knowledge of God, or with where we're at to be able to be prepared to step into our calling? I think that he has a remarkable humility and he's probably over-exaggerating and has a little bit of an imposter syndrome, but he knew that he was not prepared for the calling that God had on his life. I love a quote from him. I I don't remember how it goes exactly, but uh, really impacted my life where he says, uh, find something to say before you try and find a platform. So many people trying to find a platform, right? It's like, I just need a platform. I just need a platform. That's what we all talk about, right? Building a platform, social media, whatever it might be, finding some, some like significant looking position and all that stuff. But it's like, have you been prepared? Are you qualified for your platform? And I think what sometimes can happen are different kinds of phrases that we can throw around. Stuff like this. I don't know if you've heard things like this before, but if God has called you, then you're qualified. You know, it's like, well, you know, if God told me to do this, then like, you know, it's like God works in some kind of magic way where he just goes, boom, now, you know, like the entire Bible, or now, you know, how to be like a neuroscientist, like, I'm gonna go, you know, I'm a heart surgeon, God called me to be a heart surgeon, let's start right now, like, no, that's not the process, right, God works in processes with us. He wants us to work through a process, and he's working with us. He's co-laboring with us in that process so that we can get qualified for the calling that he has in us. God hasn't just called you and now you're qualified. God has called you to get qualified so you can enter into your calling. You may very well have a dream of something that you're wanting to do out in the future. You think that God has called you to. But I think you need to assess whether you're in a period of your life in which you need to start getting qualified, and maybe you're abysmally ignorant. Maybe you need to tell yourself that, like, well, I'm abysmally ignorant in this thing that I think God wants me to, well, guess what? That's fine. God's called you. He's not just going to put you there. You have to work your tail off to get there. That's how he's organized it. That's how he's made the world. And then you end up growing as a person when you have to be the person who gets qualified. I want to be the the best at whatever I'm going to do. He wanted to be the best possible professor. He wanted to be able to change the world through his studies and what he was doing. And he knew that there was a long way to go before he could try and do that. He could have gone and started teaching philosophy. He could have gone and started started doing all of this stuff and messed people up because he didn't actually know what he was talking about. And guess what? I've seen plenty of people do that. Myself included at times. (laughs) What has God called you to? Are you just expecting that it's going to work out? or are you working to get qualified so you can be worthy of the calling that God has called you to? A note, we don't have to become worthy before God to be in a relationship with him, right? Or get qualified to be in a relationship with him. That's a different kind of a thing, but you do have to get qualified to go to the place that he wants you to go in your work that he has for you. A couple of scriptures to go along with that. Um, uh, I just love this. Where again, this is Paul talking to Timothy. This is like 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 real time discipleship that we're seeing as Paul's writing to him, and he says, "All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped, or some translations say, qualified for every good work." Second Timothy two two, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. We've been talking about this in, uh, in our, our daily devotional combos on, on Fridays recently, Pastor, and, Pastor Ryan and I, the last couple of weeks uh, at 8 a.m. on Friday mornings, we, uh, we are live on Facebook and we talk through for about 45 minutes different scriptures. We really encourage you to join us. It's a really fun time. Um, but we've been talking this week about how much of, of the, the, as Paul is laying out the qualifications for a pastorate, and he's like, you have to be gentle, You have to be good with money. You have to raise your family. Well, you can't be quick to anger. You can't be, and he's like rigid on these are the things you have to do to step into that role. And I think we can, we we can, uh, uh, benefit from some of that. I know I've benefited from some of that because sometimes it's like, we can have like an entitled faith towards things. It's like, well, but it's, you know, like, but God just wants to do something good for me or wants to, it's like, no, like work, like work for it. Okay. I won't keep going down that whole, that whole line. And uh, so I'll just kind of start to close out Willard's story here. So Dallas loved teaching, and he considered it to be, I'm reading from a biography. By the way, great biography on Dallas Willard, Willard if you're interested in checking it out, called Becoming Dallas Willard by Gary Moon, Becoming Dallas Willard by Gary Moon, a wonderful book. And as this reads here, Dallas loved teaching and considered it a noble profession responsible for the condition of the world in years and centuries to come. His teaching, writing, and research at a technical academic level continues to nurture young minds towards truth, reason, and God. According to to Dr. Scott uh, Salamis, director of the USC School of Philosophy since 2007, Dallas was one of the most popular, versatile, and dedicated teachers the School of Philosophy has ever known. Varun Sony, Dean of the USC Office of Religious of Religious Life, called Doctor. Willard an icon for Christian scholars around the world. He was the ultimate scholar practitioner. He bridged the divide between philosophy and theology and showed us all how to bring together our spiritual and scholarly lives in a meaningful way. Okay, so I think frequently when we when we think about someone like a Willard or someone who um, is a theologian or philosopher or something like that, they uh, we think of them as being. Uh, uh, distant from realities of the world or experiences and I think a lot of times I see stuff like this all the time we we uh we belittle the the intellectual side of Christianity again these are kind of like all the things that I love talking about so you've probably heard me talk about it before but we'll belittle the, the, the the things of of you know it's not in the head it's in the heart or um you know it's not about how much you know it's how much you do or how much you experience or how much you feel or or different phrases like that And, um, there's something good about that because absolutely Christianity is not just about what's in the, what's, what's in our heads, but what we're experiencing and whether or not we're living it out. Um, but we have to have the right ideas in order to be able to live them out. And I think Willard had a, had a beautiful blending of this. So he was a prolific and profound scholar He knew that ideas were not the things that would uh, convince people in and of themselves or help him to experience the kingdom in and of itself. And here's, again, a quote from, uh, from the biography. Dallas learned about the kingdom of God by direct experience of its reality with regard to understanding Willard's view of the kingdom Rob, a biographer, makes this interesting observation. Willard's biographical confession in 2002 should be kept in mind. I didn't come to understand the kingdom through theologians. Rather, Willard confesses that it was in his own experiences and study of the four gospels which generated his view. And perhaps he began to encounter the kingdom through the practice of spiritual disciplines. Dallas states this discovery to his time at the University of Wisconsin, having noticed in Georgia that his teaching wasn't helping the Christians who were listening to him. He went to Wisconsin looking for something else. He was in Georgia, obviously moved then to Wisconsin. Exhorting people to be better followers of Jesus was not enough to help them change in the respects that were troubling them. See, Dallas knew that in this situation right here, you do not experience the kingdom of God by what I'm doing on stage right now and telling you about it. You experience the kingdom of God by experience the kingdom of God. By asking the father to turn his face in, in, in the dark and to look at you in the eyes. That's how you experience the kingdom of God. It's not through the learning and the intellectual side of things. But you can't do it without the learning and some of the intellectual side of things. Because you have to know what the kingdom of God is in order to try and experience the kingdom of God. Otherwise, what are you searching after? So it's by doing things like directly confronting the Gospels, by directly confronting and learning about the teachings of Jesus, that we can then open ourselves up to the ideas that are being presented to us. You can't have the disconnect between the two sides of the ideas and the heart, but you have to combine the head and the heart together in each of our lives so that we can apply the knowledge to our everyday life so we can be present with Jesus and disciples sitting at his feet. When you think about your relationship with Jesus, do you view yourself as someone who is sitting at his feet? Are you taking both information from him? Are you receiving the care from him? Do you have a full friendship and relationship with Jesus as our co-heir for eternity? Jesus is going to inherit eternity. We're going to inherit eternity too. He's telling us how to inherit it because he's already inherited it. He teaches you how to inherit the kingdom of God. So sit at his feet and learn. And once you learn these things, then you can more solidly live them out. I love this passage in John 8 where uh, Jesus is talking uh, uh, during his ministry. He said, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are, my, you are, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? The Jews already thought that they were in the perfect relationship with God in that time. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's something more true that I am delivering to you for you to understand. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. I encourage us to make a place for the word of Jesus within you. And more and more as we look at a kind of unique perspective on a disciple, someone who was who is very learned, is maybe we can be encouraged a little more and more to to fill our our spirit to to, it's not just again it's not just head knowledge, to fill our, our soul with the truth that Jesus has for us. And not just, you know, technical truths about the way the world is, but the truth about how God has actually intended you to live and to be, about the truth that you have been set free from sin, about the truth of what he has for you eternally. I love this final story about Willard, where you see how the truth that he had and how much he had studied it helped him to actually live out his faith. And I actually heard this story first, uh, uh, first person from one of my professors named J.P. Moreland, um, who's, a, again, another kind of famous Christian philosopher teaching at Talbot School of Theology. And we were in class with him, and he's, like, J.P. Moreland's this giant, like, uh, uh, not physically, but like this, this intellectual and spiritual giant in so many of our lives. And he's kind of sitting there, and he's just gone through a lot of cancer treatment, J.P. Moreland had. And he's, you know very kind of shrunken and you and and you can tell he's gone through a lot of chemo and he just has this little mustache that kind of sits right here and he's sitting there kind of in a stool just behind a desk like this we didn't even know if he was going to make it because he was literally had just been going through chemo and he was one of J.P. Moreland's best friends and J.P. Moreland was on his deathbed about about to die I'm sorry, Dallas Willard was on his deathbed, about to die, and Dallas Willard calls J.P. Moreland to come and talk with him. See, Dallas Willard later in his life, about 75 years old, ended up having a really short battle with cancer that ended his life very quickly. He died in 2013. And as he's sitting there at the end of his cancer battle and he's sitting with J.P. Moreland, these two intellectual and spiritual giants in the faith, J.P. Moreland goes to, to Dallas. He goes, he goes, Dallas, are, are, you, are you afraid? And Dallas goes, no, I actually believe all those things I've been teaching all these years. I just think it's so cool, it's so beautiful to see someone actually trust what they've learned. And how often in, uh, in our lives are we in difficult positions We're in tough times and all that could be relationally, that could be financially, that could be vocationally, that could be whatever it is. And do you actually trust what you have been saying about who God is? Do you actually trust that God is a provider? Do you trust that he is all powerful? Do you trust that he sees you? Do you trust that he's looking at you face to face in the bed, in the dark at night? Are you actually living out the teachings of Jesus in your life that you yourself have maybe said with your lips. I encourage us today to truly live out the truths that Jesus is telling us. That's how we can be the true disciples. If the true disciples sit at the feet of Jesus, they also go and do stuff if they believe what Jesus is saying when they're sitting at his feet and learning from him. So let's be encouraged to be disciples. Last thing, to cap that off, is to go back to Hebrews, which I referenced earlier, is that all of us as disciples are in this together. So in in, in Hebrews, I won't read through all of it, but it's going, this person by their faith did this, and this person by their faith did this, and this person by their faith did this. Abraham, giants of the faith. And then he, he ends it with this. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, meaning the fullness of what they were desiring They didn't receive the fullness, but they still pushed forward in faith. But they hadn't received the fullness of the promise since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. None of us are going to be perfect disciples. None of us are going to receive all of the fullness of the promise because it is a process in which all of us together are a part of the plan as disciples that are moving towards eternity, both now and forever, and that's when we're going to receive it together. Since all of us together are a part of that plan of sitting at the feet of Jesus as disciples and going out and and doing the work. It's not going to be over. We aren't going to receive all of it right now or tomorrow, but we're moving towards it, but we all have to do it together because it's intended for all of us as a family. A lot of times we'll focus on like the saints or in different traditions, they might focus on, on the saints, right? Like people who are, who are especially venerated. But we have to remember, like we'll think of those them as like all the great disciples. All of us are saints. All of us are the disciples that have the label of saint that are moving forward towards what God has for us. We just have to sit at his feet. We just have to actually believe it and we actually act on it and do something.